but it's a very useful tool to to reshape the nose. You can take big uh, or small humps where you can do some resection and block resection. We can use that as a reconstructive graft. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast. It's our last episode in the month of May, which has proudly been brought to us by Vectra from Canfield Scientific, the awesome 3D photography system. And uh, the last speak in the month comes all the way from Mexico in, in the city of San Luis Potosi. And he was one of the speakers at the World Rhinoplasty Day, the last of the young guns. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome Dr. David Galaza to the show. David, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you, Cameron, and all the audience. Uh, we are going to, you know, talk about some of the stuff we do here in Mexico with our, you know, particular style. And I'm really uh, grateful to be here. So, so David, tell me, you know, I, I've never had the privilege of being in Mexico. The closest I've come to Mexico is when you guys broke our hearts at the Soccer World Cup in 2010 when it was the opening game against you guys and we scored such a great goal and then the Mexicans came back and beat the South Africans and it was such a sad day for us. But uh, Mexico is a great country. I would love to one day come and visit you there. Tell me, um, whereabouts in Mexico is the city that you live in? Uh, actually, uh, well, I, I, I don't go as far as uh, 10 years ago when we, we played the World Cup. I mean, you have a very, very good memory. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I come from uh, San Luis, as you just said. Um, it's, in, it's a city right in the middle of the country. If you look at the map and you just point out uh, the center of it, that's right where San Luis Potosí is. And, you know, it's a, it's a city... It's not a big city. It's a, a one million people city. I mean, it's not so small, not so big. And we are uh, around 1,900 above about sea level. And we have a warm weather. I mean, it's a semi-desert type city. So it has, you know, those characteristics. And we're very close, you know, to Mexico City, but we are also close to the major cities like Monterrey and Guadalajara. And besides that, well, it's it's a it's a well connected place, you know. Oh, that's great, eh? and you're very far away from that wall that Trump was going to build, eh? <laughs> yeah, we're far away. <laughs> I mean, but uh, <laughs> he's gone already, so <laughs> that's great. Eh? There, there's me. someone in charge now. So, some other in charge. <laughs> tell tell me your story as to how did you become an international board-certified facial plastic surgeon. Where did this all start? Oh, well, uh, I guess I first, I, I will have to go back to my uh, university days because at the beginning, I, I didn't know I was going to, to do otolaryngology after, or after finishing medical school. Uh, this comes because... Uh, I come from a family where my dad's it's a it's a doctor and also my grandfather is a doctor. However, both uh, both of them um, they are pediatricians. My grandfather and also my my dad. Uh, so I got into medicine like you know I, I all I knew was pediatrics, 
And I was really looking forward to that because, you know, at the beginning, I, I liked that. But once we were on medicine, you know, I started, uh, you know, looking at different things. And once uh, I got into the surgical year where we see all surgical specialties, uh, I really liked that. So uh, it was like, you know, uh, that's, this is my thing, you know. I, I like to do some stuff with my hands and uh, it, be, it began like that. So uh, once that I finished my internship, I, I really decided I wanted to do otolaryngology. And one of the main reasons was because I really liked the nose. I mean, inside and outside, you know, uh, to do rhinoplasties, I, I really uh, focus on that, but also on the on the nasal sinuses, paranasal sinuses. I, I, I mean, it was something that I really, really liked. So that put me in otolaryngology, you know? Uh, so after I finished medical school, I went to Mexico City to do my, my specialty, otolaryngology, had an surgery, and once I I was like in second year, here here we have a four year program, uh, and around second year I, I began uh, you know focusing on of course on rhinoplasty, studying a lot about it since I started residency, but also I, I also started looking into facial plastics as a subspecialty. I really enjoyed all the all the different topics uh, and areas of facial plastic surgery. So around third year, uh, I really looked forward into doing to do a fellowship. So when I was in residency, still in residency, I you know I I wanted to see different different surgeons, different techniques besides what I learned in, in residency. And uh, I began to do that, uh, you know, taking some uh, free time of my own to, you know, to learn more and see some other stuff. And I, I guess I, I always had that curiosity, you know, to, to know more, experience more. And after I finished my specialty, I applied to, to do a fellowship in facial plastic surgery uh, here in Mexico. And I was able to, to get one of the two places at, at the time, uh, uh, the three places. There, there were only three places like 10 years ago. There were no more, no, no other place to do fellowships. So uh, I was hope, I was uh, thankful to get in and, and to start fellowship with the, with the Mexican University of, uh, National Mexican University called UNAM. Uh, so I did my fellowship and, you know, it, it, that began pushing me towards that. Um, so I think it's like a journey uh, where once you are, you know, on that train, you need to pursue and continue, um, pursue and continue, you know, to, to, to do more, not just for you, but also for for others, because I think the, the the certification and the board it's a 
it's a thing where I believe all facial plastic surgeons, all people that, that have done fellowships, uh, you need to do that to, to be standardized, you know, around the world. So after I finished fellowship, uh, I spent some time with, with Dr. Jonathan Sykes and also with Dr. Kit Laferriere. I don't know if you know them, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, the, the one that really, um, after I, I have already finished and, uh, all, all training and I have been already in practice when I was with visiting Dr. Kit Laferriere. He was the one that really pushed me. He, he was the one that, that really, really pushed me to, to begin the certification. Mm -hmm to do the board, the board test, the exam, and, you know, do all requisites that you have already done. So, uh, he was really the one that, uh, got me to, got encouraged me to, to, you know, to finish it off. However, I, I already had that idea, but I know I was a little hesitant about, uh, you know, what to do it or when, when to do it at the time, uh, you know, I had already started a family. My, I had a little, little John girl. So, you know how it's, how it is when you start practice. It's not like it's an easy, it's a way to go. So, uh, I, I'm right, right now I'm really happy to have done everything, but I mean, it, it's, uh, it's really something that, um, I really encourage all young surgeons to pursue, to do it because as times go by, the certification is more and more important mm. uh, everywhere in the world. I mean, you look at not not only medicine, but I mean in all other areas, and you know, in business, you know, in in construction sites, in hotels, there's more and more international certifications. So, as facial plastic surgeons, I I believe we must be certified by high standards and those highest standards are the core certification in facial plastic surgery internationally. Now, I can't agree with you more. It's, it's brilliant. But so David, the nice thing about it is that I think the thing that inspires me about your approach is that you want to teach as well. I mean, you were one of three fellows back in the day. Um, but since then, I often bump into you at congresses and the, the European meeting in Amsterdam, for example, or in Orlando, etc. What is it that makes you want to grow more in helping other people in rhinoplasty and facial plastic surgery? Well, I, I think that, that um, what, what makes me want to do that, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, an easy question, but maybe what uh, I'm looking for is to, to enhance the results of all of all colleagues here in Mexico to have better results to have um, more to have our patients to be happier with their results and also at the same time avoid those uh, avoid those results that you and I uh, come by every once and then that are you know disastrous so. Uh, 
we as rhinoplasty surgeons, we really look forward to to have happy patients and not only our patients, but I mean the the whole community to have very good results and avoid those awful rhinoplasty uh, mm. results we we have seen, you know, in some uh, in some television shows or on the internet or yeah. Instagram. So uh, I believe that's that's the main the main thing that pushes me, you know, to learn and also to pass along to to other guys, you know. Younger generation. So David, tell me, before we climb into your topic for for this evening, um, what are you doing when you're not working? Tell me a little bit about who who David is when he's not in his scrubs. (laughs) Well, um, you know, I like to take some free time. I'm I'm a guy that really likes movies. So I like to go to the movie theater. I mean, uh, here in Mexico, movie theaters are already open again so i'm really happy about it um you know i'm an easy and relaxed guy i like to go to movies i like to do some exercise i mean light stuff not as you uh but uh i i like to do some <laughs> some uh, uh light exercise you know and besides that well i i really like to to know, um, you know, my, my, I have different hobbies. One of them, uh, besides doing, doing, uh, uh exercise to, to watch and follow some, some sports. I, I don't, uh, I don't know, but I, I think you're a very, uh, very, uh, you know, fan of soccer <laughs> or, or, or I don't know you, I, I'm not so fan. I, I follow champions league, you know, very closely. But I, I mostly follow, uh, you know, American football. You know it. Yeah, we we play rugby. That rugby is the yeah. real game. You know, we don't put pads on when we go into yeah, the field. <laughs> we have a a lot of influence from our our neighbor in the United States. So uh, I really love football, American football. Uh, I also follow the NBA. I mean, I'm a big fan of those two sports. And also some others like uh, Formula One. I mean, yeah. Uh, every Sunday I get up early just to watch uh, Formula One. Wow, it's it's something I really enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in your family, but I mean, h- how many children? You mentioned your daughter. Do you have any other children? Yes, yes, I, I have uh, a child and a daughter. My 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 girl. She's well. She's already grown. She's 12 years old, and my little kid, he's nine years old. So they have uh, grown a little bit, you know? <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thank you for taking time away from them to come and talk to us. So they, they, surely, I mean, uh, they, they take a lot of time from you, you know? Uh, I spend a lot of time, you know, in the weekends with them. Uh, I play with them. Uh, and besides that, well, you know, time flies by. Yeah. Well, Let's get into the topic that you want to speak to everybody around. Sure. I, I would remind you that whilst you get your presentation ready, um, we have the podcast goes out on four or five different platforms. So there'll be many people around the world who can't necessarily watch it on YouTube. So um, I'd encourage you to explain it carefully when you do get to sections that people would normally be able to observe. Instead, they'll have to listen. Yeah, sure. Of course. Well, let me share my screen. Let me know if, 
if it's working. So whilst you're getting ready for that, um, I know when we were just chatting away, you're saying that you, you're slowly moving, dabbling into the preservation rhinoplasty from structural rhinoplasty. So tell me a little bit about your journey of how you're getting there. Well, uh, as you know, uh, or maybe you didn't know, or the audience, but uh, here in Mexico, there are some very good surgeons that uh, have been doing preservation for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and they speak on, on, on the meetings on our uh, Mexican Society of Facial Plastic Surgery. They speak on meetings. However, uh, I learned the preservation wave from the start and um, I actually didn't, didn't think about learning the push down or let down. And, you know, uh, I didn't actually learn it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, it something was, that it I must what, have done. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, I, I didn't look into it and I asked some, some different surgeons about it. And they all told me, oh, you know, that's old stuff. You don't need to learn that. I mean, you, you, you don't need to, to do that. I mean, there's new ways and better ways that's to correct. do it. To manage the dorsum, so don't waste time going into that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, <laughs> it is what it is. No, uh, I never learned. I never learned. Although I knew the technique, not uh, uh, with all the details, but I knew about it, and I heard. You know, I, I heard the talks, and you know. But I, I mean, it, it didn't look something appealing to me. Yeah. Uh, however. Once the preservation rhinoplasty meetings started, you know, there, there was like something inside of me that it was like, you know what, what is that? What I, I need to know about what they're talking about. Um, and that's what is it started it all because, um, I began reading some papers. I mean, there were not a lot like three years ago, two years ago, actually, there were not a lot of papers about it. Um, so I began, uh, reading, reading something about it. And, you know, after some, some thinking about it and after meditating, I, I started doing, uh, some preservation, some preservation, looking at videos, looking at meetings, asking questions. And that, that thing took me to start doing different techniques in, in preservation rhinoplasty. And right now I would say that I'm shifting more of trying to fix the dorsum in a preservation way, not in a specific technique, because I like to try different ones depending on the deformity, but I, I like to, to try to do it that way because I believe you can have better uh, dorsal results in the long term because in the short term, I mean, you, if you do a good job, you can have a very nice result. However, in the long term, I believe you can have even better results doing some preservation of the dorsum. So I start, I started shifting. I started doing, you know, small, uh, small stuff and began climbing it up and, and do uh, even 
tougher or bigger deformities. You know, I began with straight nose, very small humps, and then I began doing bigger humps, higher humps, and uh, also started doing um, some crooked noses, doing preservation, and I have really liked the results so far. Uh, I haven't still left the structural part. I would say that I, I do maybe 60% preservation, 40% uh, structural on on the dorsum, not not the tip, but on the dorsum. And I began shifting because I really like the results I'm getting. I, I believe they, they have increased, uh, I have increased the results in in doing preservation in certain noses. Well, that's awesome. So we, we, we're going to have a whole we, month of preservation coming up, but for, for tonight's talk, um, you're going to be speaking to us about the use of surgical burrs in rhinoplasty, eh? Sure, sure. Uh, this is something that I've been doing for, for quite a while now. Uh, back in the day, <laughs> when I was an otolaryngology resident, I really, I, I told you already about, all you guys, I already told you about um, my, my experience with, with rhinoplasty. But uh, I really loved otologic surgery. I mean, it was something that I really liked. And uh, I really love to use the surgical burr to do mastoids. And it's something that after residency, I stopped, I stopped doing it. I, didn't, I, I haven't done some mastoidectomy since then. But uh, once, once I, I, I began knowing about the, the burrs, that you can use them, I believe it's a very useful tool to reshape the nose because even if you have a very sharp and a very nice uh, chisels or osteotomes, I mean, you can have them in, in surgical steel, you can have them in ceramic, you can have them in tungsten carbide, but I mean, you don't have the precision that you can get with a board. And I look at it like as when when mastoidectomies were done with chisels, and I think that that in maybe in a lot of years, fifty years or, or so on, um, our colleagues then will look at us and say, "How how were you doing rhinoplasties with, with with chisels? I mean, you, you you should have sculpted the nose, you know." And um, I really thought about that. that <laughs> that analogy, I mean, in otologic surgery, why aren't we all using burrs? Because it's a very versatile instrument. So uh, I'm, I'm going to speak a little bit about how I use the burrs. Uh, I don't. I know that the, the video is not very good here, uh, but I mean, I can show you some pictures about it and how I do it. So. Um, I began using surgical burrs for some years now. I don't remember the exact date, but it's a very useful tool to to reshape the nose because you can take big uh, or small humps just like this one, where you can do some resection and block resection, and you can we can use that as a reconstructive graft, just like I show you here. The picture. This is a hump. 
a complete comp with mm -hmm. uh, cartilaginous part, with the osseous part. And I use the drill, you know, the surgical with a with a with a drill on the tip to make small holes. And we can use those to put it in as a septal extension graft. Just a, as you are all watching in the image, we can have, um, let me show you, just like that, as a, a septal extension graft. And we can do that in cases where, where we have a hump in in some um, in some rhinoplasty surgeries that are secondary, and we have no more septum, but the patient doesn't want us to take some ribs, so we can we can use the hump in order to reconstruct the septum, and we can do it in this way, this matter. We also can do with this burrs, with different, with, with other type of burr, we can, I, in, in this example, I'm gonna use um, a small tip uh, cover with diamond dust. So we can make very small uh, resection. We can like polish the bones and we can take very small pieces of it out and we can smooth the dorsum and at the same time, we can lower it. And uh, without doing, you know, uh, without having a lot of, of, you know, damage to the areas. So we can, the, the thing is that we can, we can use different inserts depending on what we want. We can, as we, as I told you here, we can do, we can use the drill to do small holes. We can use the, the diamond coated drill to polish. Let me see if the video works for all of the ones that are on YouTube. There you go. Here we are polishing, putting all the dorsum. Yeah. We can take, you know, something as small as, you know, one tenth of a millimeter. We, we can take a, like a tenth of a millimeter by a time, so it's very precise. Here we have another video. We can shape the nose. We can take out the places that we want to without damaging others or producing unwanted fractures. I mean, and it's something like ultrasonic rhinoplasty, where you can you have more precise cuts. You can have more precise technique in, uh, or more precise. Um, how do you say it? Mm, like having um, it's a it's a a, a finesse work. Doing, doing that yeah, way. 100%. So, so do you use any piezo um, instrumentation when you're operating? Uh, no, I actually don't. I actually don't use piezo. I have a look into it. I have tried it. I have done some rhinoplasties with, with piezo. But uh, I, I don't know if, if the tips that I have tried 
uh, do not fit my my way of doing uh, the surgery. I have tried it, tried one for the dorsum, and I feel it's very slow. You know, it takes. I feel it takes a lot of time to to take it out, and I prefer doing doing this with the burr. I mean, because it's very quick. In five minutes, you can do all the dorsum, all the all the all the bony cap, or you can take out all the the higher part of the the bony dorsum real quick and you can do that using uh, aggressive burrs just like the ones we we use on octoloic surgery i also use those to take out big humps and it's very quick and once i want to smooth out the dorsum i can put the 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 diamond coated burr and to smooth out everything and i have done it with pieso but i feel it takes longer on surgery so I don't know if it's it's part of the you know the learning curve, but uh, but I really like the way uh, I can handle the, the the drill. So a question I have here is: What are the, some of the complications you find with using powered burrs? Uh, I believe that the the or, main or perhaps I should rephrase that: What are the the things um, people who want to use powered burrs in rhinoplasty should be careful of? I think that the, the main thing is to be very careful in putting the drill where you should because you have you don't have any protection if you if you slide to the side and uh, some some tissue becomes becomes trapped between the burr and the the handpiece you can have a, a lot of damage there so it's something that you you must look at it all the time. And you must be very careful. I have not had it, but uh, but I mean, uh, it's something that uh, you need to look into it a lot of all the time, you know. And you know, minor minor stuff. I mean, if you begin begin drilling without enough water, you can get the the bone to be very hot. Mm-hmm. It can burn the bone, so we don't want that. So you need to to be instilling water at the same time that you are drilling and that's something that also if you are uh, having in, enough irrigation you, you won't have any problems and I would say that's the main the main thing in the cosmetic area you know in, in the aesthetic part I mean if you're not used to the drill you can take out more bone than you would like to I mean if you are not careful you can uh, take out more and the thing is that you cannot put it back in you know because in resection, if you take it out and you think it's too much, you can, uh, you know, do a thin slice of it and then you can put it back on. Uh, here, if you just uh, pulverize all the area, I mean, you don't have more bone to put there. So, And, and David, what uh, do you do that's with the bone dust? Uh, nothing. I don't do nothing because it's very, very small. I mean, all the bone dust, uh, when when we take out a big hump, I, ju- I just uh, irrigate it and clean it out. Mm-hmm. But when it's very fine, uh, I mean, you don't even see it. I mean, it's very, it's like very small dust that you you don't even see there. So uh, most of the time, I would say I don't have to to clean it out. Like I mean, we always irrigate, but I mean, it's not like uh, going back to the mastoid. 
It's not like you you see a a, a lot of detritus mm. or a lot of uh, bone dust there. So actually, don't do anything with it. Uh, actually, sometimes if I have a big hump, I like to res to use the chisel to resect some uh, the top part, and then with the surgical board, I like to take out and smooth out the dorsal, the remaining part. So actually, don't get a lot of bone bone dust. Well, that's great, eh? Um, and yeah, so do you have some more examples? Yeah, yeah, me, yeah I, I'm going to show you uh, another example, and then some. I can show you some cases. Uh, well, this is a case where we did exactly that. We just used the the diamond drill to smooth out the dorsum. We also did some uh, cartilage preservation technique here, this crooked nose. And you can see the shape of the new dorsum, very smooth. And that's what I really like about this technique, that you can get can have very smooth dorsum, but at the same time, there's no almost no tra traumatic part on our side from the instrumentation. And... The good thing about this is that you can do all the work through small holes. You don't need you don't need to dissect a lot, than, and that's what I've seen some with piezo. I mean, I'm not an expert in it, and I don't have all at the at my hands. But what I, the ones that I've seen, you need to dissect more uh, because you have some curve curve uh, hand pieces. So I I prefer it. I prefer to do it this, this way. This is a close-up view of the dorsum. And also, we can take advantage of septal deviations and bony spurs, such as this. Once we take it out and it's very crooked, well, most of the times we don't do nothing with it, or we can crush it and put it back inside. But if we have a big piece, like the ones I'm showing, we can use that to our advantage. And we can uh, work with the with the burr. We can work on that spur and change that spur into a, a straight piece of bone, like, like a plate. And we can use that in order for... In, the, in order to reconstruct the nose or do structure, the structural part of the nose. Here I'm going to show you how I I begin taking some some pieces out of the bone, how we begin drilling drilling it. Here we are using an aggressive burr, or we can have some some others where are not so aggressive. It depends on what we need to do. There you go. You can see how it's getting flatter. Mm -hmm. All the burr. Well, I mean, all the all the spur. No, I, you can see I love you doing this on Sunday. I feel like I'm a ontologist again, drilling some bone, and it, it can work so beautifully in various crafts. This is smoother. This is not as aggressive, and we can do very fine work on it in order to make a small bone plate that we can use, you know, as a, as a, 
as a septal extension graft, as I just showed you. We can use it as a spreader. We can use it as a stabilization graft. I mean, there are different ways you can use it depending on your case. So we don't need to, you know, just take it out and um, put it in the garbage can, you know. And here's a case where we did exactly that. Let me show you. Here we change also the shape of the dorsum, smoother dorsum, better profile. We use that uh, deviation that she had in order to straighten the, the septum on the inside, but also at the same time we used to, we did some um, dorsal preservation, but we using the burr to take out the bony the bony part of the of the hub. Here's a close-up view using the drills. Here's the result. Um, is it okay like that, Cameron? Or yeah, it's beautiful. I can't help but notice your tip. They they really lovely. Are you using quite a lot of ALR rim grafts? Yes, yes. Um, I've seen that uh, our the tendency of of most of our patients is to have weak cartilages and weak on the septum, on the upper and the lower cartilage. So we have very weak noses, so we need to strengthen them. That's why that's why I have shifted, uh, you know, a little bit more to these new techniques because I can save cartilage in order to do more on the on the tip of the nose, including other cartilages, including uh, tip grafts, including uh, septal station grafts when we need them. But uh, yes, yes, uh, I, I really like and I love the, the way that um, rim grafts work. How about you? Do you use them a lot, Cameron? Yes. No, same thing, eh? But I, I don't, I, I like jump around between... My two of my great mentors were uh, Spencer and Rick Davis, Spencer Koch and Rick Davis. And um, sometimes use an articulated one and sometimes using a free floating one. So I think it, it's just that little bit of finesse that makes such a difference on the profile on the sides here as well. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I use it more and more. The, the only limitation is that sometimes we get patients that only have like one square centimeter of available cartilage in order to do, you know, <laughs> the whole nose. So, uh, I mean, in sept septal cartilage. So we, some, we need sometimes to take from other places. So every, every small piece of cartilage we can save, it's a plus for, for us and our patients. So David, so, I'm going to uh, kind of bring at least that's what I do. The, the bony stuff kind of, I think, for me, what I found was great is when I was still a resident, I dissected 50 cadaver noses and measured up uh, the lateral crew of the low laterals. But I think if someone was, some of the junior listeners on the podcast want to be using powered instruments in the nose, I think it's very important to get into um, the cadaver lab and practice on the cadavers before you're actually doing in surgery, eh? Sure. I mean, it's, it, I believe it's a must because 
I mean, it's a very nice instrument, but I mean, it's not safe in untrained hands. I mean, it can be disastrous if, if they began using it because you, if they do over resect with doing this, this, uh, this power drills, well, you don't have, you don't have any tissue to, to, you know, to pull it back, back up and reconstruct. But I mean, it's, I believe it's really useful. You know, like in this case where, you know, let me, uh, am I showing my screen? Yes. Oh, okay. Like here where we have a very weak septum. <coughs> Sorry. I have, we have a very weak septum that it's crooked. So the, the bony part, I, I show you here, the bony part is already thinned out. And I also have done some small holes in order to pass my needle with the sutures. Like we can do a very straight uh, dorsum, like I'm, like you can see here in the picture, and also we can do, we can use that in order to put some septal extension graft, and you have a better and more stable nose at the same time. So we can use the deflection to our advantage, but um, it's something that that we, I believe that. In all noses where we don't have enough cartilage, we need to look at it. I mean, it's a it's a powerful tool. Also, as you just said, it's not for everyone. I believe that it takes a learning curve, and also in, in, you need to you know do some lab work before you try it on on patients. Yeah, well, David, thank um, you. I'll show you one last case of before and after using what I just showed. You can see the three quarters view, the profile view. You know, tips like this where they are all the way down, there's no support, there's also a little, there's, there's not so much cartilage, you have a hump. Well, you can take it, you need to take advantage of all small pieces of bone or cartilage that you have at your hand. So here's the pre and the post-op view of my lovely patient. So uh, I believe it's it's something that um, we can have in our arsenal. I mean, it's not a must that you, you do it, but I will say that I use it quite often. I bring it with me to the OR all the time. And it's something that I, I have become more and more depend uh, dependable on to to do my rhinoplasty surgery. Well, awesome, man, David. Thank you very much yeah. for that. So, um, well, before you? I let you, you go you back PAs to work, I, I, I have started to use piezo much more. So I use powered instruments when when it's necessary. Um, I, I try and not necessarily limit myself to one thing. So we actually have bought a piezo for the new hospital. So I've been using it around the country. We haven't had one in Port Elizabeth yet. Um, so I'm very excited. Nine weeks time, I've got my own piezo and it's going to be great. So um, what I want to ask you as a parting shot, um, sure. what will you say are the three most important things for you in rhinoplasty that you'd want to share with our listeners? Uh the, the three most important, um, I would say, 
The first, I believe it's to talk with our patient, to really know what he or she are looking for, and to take it from there, because there's still a lot of, um, I think that the most difficult part in rhinoplasty is to have our patients happy. And actually that's what what we we must look forward to achieve. So we must talk with our patient, we must really know what they are looking for uh previous previous to the to the surgery. And we ha- we need to have a very good communication with them about the whole process. I would say that's the first. Um uh, the second I would say that the most important is to be up to date. I mean, it's a uh, this this area is changing mm. every day. I mean, it, it's awesome how what we are speaking right now. Well, two years ago it was something that don't, didn't even exist. Mm. So I mean, it's it's a it's like a roller coaster. I mean, it's 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 very fast. So I think we must be prepared, we must be up to date uh, all the time that uh, we, we need to, to look into that. And the third, let me let me think about it. I w- the third, I would say that uh, learn, I, I would say it would be to share our experience and knowledge with others as well as learn from our colleagues that have been doing different stuff because we all do different things. However, it's always important to to see their perspective and also to see compared with you. And you, you can you can do amazing stuff and once once you do that. So mm-hmm. and as I mentioned earlier, I mean it's our duty to to teach the new generations that comes uh, after us. Well, I would say those are my three. Thank you very much, you know, and uh, this brings us to the end of uh, this series on the young guns from some of the rising stars of rhinoplasty around the world. And I really want to thank you for your time. Um, Obviously, a big shout out to uh, the Vector guys from Canfield for bringing this series to us. And I'm very excited to announce that in the month of June, we have the American Masters coming up on the Rhinoplasty podcast. So you better be tuning in because you're going to be listening to the likes of Dean Turiomi and Rod Rorick and Rick Davis and uh, Peter Adamson. So well, we're really looking forward to that. And then we'll be moving across to Europe because we've spent a lot of time in the western part of the world. We want to now move over and start seeing what's happening in Europe and on the other side of the ocean. But David, I just, yeah, from, honestly, from my side, thank you very much. And on behalf of all the listeners from all around the world, um, we appreciate the fact that you've taken time off your practice today. And also thank you again for your involvement with the rhinoplasty, World Rhinoplasty Day last year. We, we really thoroughly enjoyed having you as one of the presenters from Mexico. So I really hope and pray things go well for you and for your family. And thank you for today again. No, thanks again, Cameron. I mean, World Rhinoplasty Day was was a, an amazing idea, and you can you can follow it up with uh, the Rhinoplasty podcast that it's 
already uh, a success. So uh, I'm really happy to be here with all of you and be here with, with Cameron. And uh, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed this, this talk. So thank you very much. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you, you know, live once we, we can get back on our regular meetings and also to see you all uh, at the, the, next, the next meeting, hopefully. Awesome. Right. Thank you very much. And thank you to all our listeners for listening. Please make sure that you um, spread the word. Tell your friends about the Rhinoplasty podcast. Go onto the YouTube channel if you, can, you want to watch it on video or you can just download it and listen to it on Spotify or Google or Apple, various pod, uh, platforms.